Hey everyone, this is Jim. I am the, uh, where am I right now? I'm at the beach, over at Ocean Beach, sitting in my car, uh, gonna go jogging and a little bit here, but, uh, I thought I'd jump on here and do a quick little podcast since I have not done one in, well, at least a couple of days. I don't remember the last time I did one was. Time just sort of is weirdly flexed when you're not working. And you have to stay inside uh, pretty much every day without leading any normal life. Uh, actually, it's not hasn't been that bad. I've, I've been getting out quite a bit. Um, yeah, been taking advantage of having a car, which I think I've talked about before. What's going on? Uh, you know, I've like I've picked this thing up and started recording a podcast, and I have a blog too. Like I, I start writing entries on there all the time. I just never. Yeah, like I, I don't, I don't publish them. You know, I get halfway through and I'm like, nobody wants to read this. Why the hell am I doing this? I don't even want to finish this. And now it's like that. I, that was always the problem with the blog. The blog was always like, well, I don't think I want to finish this because no one wants to read it. Now it's like I have like topics I want to write about or podcast about, and I'll get like halfway through a podcast and be like, you know, this is all complicated. This would be a better, this would be a better blog entry. And I'll like start writing the blog. I'll get halfway through. I'm like, no, this was better as a podcast. I'll just never finish the damn thing. I'm just coming up with all kinds of excuses not to finish my shit. Typical human. Anyway, yeah, it's not like, not like anyone matters. Uh, like I've said, I, I do want to start writing and uh, it would be nice to produce something, but it'd be nice if it weren't a podcast and weren't like just some blog that no one reads stuck in Google's sandbox for five years, you know, not getting any traffic whatsoever. Uh, I'm thinking about doing music again. Um, I am currently uh, reading about the history of Halloween. Um, Yeah, because I've always been very interested in producing Halloween music. Uh... And I don't know what that would sound like. Like, like about 10 years ago, I did record a Halloween album. Uh, like I f- formed a group, which is just me with a keyboard and a computer, uh, called Autumn Abandon. And I recorded some like, like 20 little instrumental songs in maybe two or three weeks. Didn't, wasn't, wasn't much. There was a group I was listening to at the time, like an instrumentalist. I think it was just an instrumentalist who goes by the name of Knox Arcana. And he just writes, I heard his music is used like at Disneyland if you're waiting in line for a ride. Like they will play his music. It just sets, kind of sets a spooky ambiance. Uh, it's, it's too cheesy for movies, really. Um, and you wouldn't put it on at parties, I don't think. It's, it's, you know, if you, if you like have trick or treaters coming up, you have your house all decorated like on Halloween, you, you could throw that on and it would, it, it would, you know, do the trick. But I'm really kind of interested in this whole idea of I do like making music that's a little bit darker, you know, like minor chords, diminished chords, all that music theory shit. Uh, I like the elements of um, like Halloween music. But right now, if you like, if it's Halloween time and you say, like, okay, I need to throw on some some Halloween music, whatever that might be. As far as I know, there isn't like a go-to. 
there isn't a group where people say like, oh, yeah, Halloween, it, you, you throw on such and such. Like there seem to be some scattered hits. Like everybody throws on Michael Jackson's Thriller. They throw on Monster Mash. Uh, there's maybe a couple other mainstays you could point to, but there isn't like a there isn't like a group where the, you, you would throw them on at Halloween because it's good party music. It's appropriate for the season. As far as I know, there isn't like a thing. Like that's just an untapped uh, hole in the musical market. And it's not clear to me how you would fill it. I, I think it would, you know, um, but it would be an interesting challenge. You're like I, I once, I, th- I think it was in, it was Marilyn Manson's autobiography. He was talking about how the real idea behind his music that he came out with in the middle of the nineties was he noticed that there were, there were gangster rappers um, saying these really outrageous things and pissing off, you know, politicians and the mainstream media. I was like, they're saying like, like cop killer, that sort of thing. And he was like, I wonder if it's possible for like a group of like white guys with a rock band to like do the same thing. So he was just kind of testing, like, is there a market for this particular thing in a different demographic uh, with a different musical style? And I thought that was interesting because I always thought like it was the first time I, I, I had encountered a musician who revealed that he was actually thinking kind of like a businessman uh, at the inception of creating what he wanted to do. And I'm guessing that probably I don't know if that was really what he thought or if he had that thought after the fact. Um, Mr. Brian Warner, I, I don't know, but I, I, that's kind of what I would think. I certainly wouldn't start creating Halloween music that I would hope would go mainstream uh, because I wanted it to go mainstream. I, I think it would just be, that would be the ch- part of the challenge. Is it, I think it's pretty easy to make, make Halloween music. It's not, not that tricky. But to try and make something that is catchy, that would like actually not only set like a somber mood, but would be upbeat enough or have interesting elements that would work in a party situation. Like you're having friends over and then you're playing a board game and Hey, here's this, here's this, uh, kind of, I don't know. I don't even know what it would look like. Uh, I think, um, I think it's a matter of, I have to start exploring music that, uh, might, might be appropriate to that kind of, to that kind of situation that might set that kind of mood. I don't know. It's like, I really have no idea. It's, uh, I think, I think that's what I like about it too, is because that is a hard thing to pin down. It's more just kind of this, this vague foggy area you'd have to move around musically and create stuff in. And you just, you just see where you end up. Like it wouldn't be, I'm going to try and just do exactly what this other group, Nox Arcana, is doing. But just my thing. It's like you'd have to like try and look around for things that you like and emulate them and put them together in novel ways that might accomplish like this goal of yours. So, uh, but yeah, but I'm reading about the history of Halloween because I want to know, I want to know elementally what it is that like, where did Halloween come from? Like, there's, I, I like, I, I know it was roughly a Celtic festival. Uh, I think a festival called Samhain. That's it. I mean, I, I think it's Celtic, so it's Gaelic. So I'm, I've only ever seen it in writing, so I have no idea how it's pronounced. 
Gaelic is, I cannot pronounce, I would have an easier time pronouncing Japanese characters if I saw them and I don't know Japanese. Gaelic is hard. I don't, I don't know how you are supposed to, to, to speak Gaelic words. But the festival of Samhain, which is, I, th- I think it was a harvest festival, uh, like around the time, like it was around the, the, the cusp of like October to November. And uh, it, w- it was either that or it was uh, you know, a festival of the dead, or it was a festival that was kind of both. Anyway, the thing is like the, the celebrations of the harvest going into winter and the celebrations of the dead they were both kind of around the same time and they ended up they ended up getting fused um yeah and that actually is like people say like christmas was moved to be around the winter solstice so as to like appropriate the pagan holidays like like so hey christianity is going to swallow the swallow paganism that's what's always happened uh since Christianity started overtaking the earth. Um, I don't know if that's true about Christmas. That That is true about Halloween. There there was a Catholic holiday. It was a celebration of the dead, like All Saints Day. And that was, that was deliberately placed around the time of the Celtic festival uh, so as to um, kind of a... a What's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for a fancy word that I don't need to use. Uh, so as to uh, engulf. That, that'll do. So as to engulf, you know, the pagan holiday and bring uh, the pagan worshippers into the... And, uh, yeah, there's a whole, a whole bunch to it. Like, there was a whole bunch of stuff. Like, apparently it, it ended up falling close towards, like, November 11th. Like, towards the middle of November. But then they switched from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar about 500 years ago. And uh, so then it shifted back um, back to be around November 1st. And it ultimately ends up falling on. Uh, where am I going with this? Why the hell am I talking about all this crap? Okay, so, right. Um, the thing is, is that the, there is always this idea of winter is coming. And there's going to be a festival that will honor the dead. You know, the El Dia de los Muertos uh, of the um, Latin America. That's that's a completely different thing. That was also that also fell around this time. So it seems like th- there's kind of this convergent thing: a festival like celebrating the dead, or it's a day or a night when like the boundary between the living and the dead is weakened. So the dead can come back over and traditions of like building fires so that people in purgatory can find their way out of purgatory. You know, I like, I like the idea of, of the fire, but there's all these like rites and traditions and they all sort of cropped up around the same time. And they're all around, you know, death. They're all around something oddly, the spiritual mystical, um, and so it feels like there's something innate to us. Like there's some underlying feeling or some underlying, uh, I don't know what you call it, some, some motifs there that are just innate to us that always manifest themselves in like this same way. At least in Western civilization, I haven't looked into, you know, 
like Chinese cultures or Asian cultures. I have no idea if they have like a, a celebration of the dead kind of thing. But um, I, I'm looking basically for like, I'd kind of like that to, to drive like what the, the, the themes of the album might be. Like what the musical themes might be, what the lyrical themes might be, what the artwork for the album might be. Like I, basically I wanted to like paint an interesting picture and I wanted to tap into something primal, like some sort of primal, uh, instinctual base level mythology that is associated with Halloween. Um, and somehow make it poppy at the same time. So something that's catchy and yet traditional. Um, that, that may not be palatable, but it would at least be interesting. You know, I don't know what those elements would be, and I don't know if they could be, they could be fused in an interesting way. But I'm starting to think about, about doing that. Um, I have been interviewing for jobs. I had one yesterday, which I, I really, I, the company I interviewed with, I really like what they're doing. And it, the interview went very, very well. Honestly, if I don't get a job offer from them after the way this interview went, the way the, all of them went, um, I, I think I might seriously reconsider staying in San Francisco. I'm like, okay, if this didn't work out, I don't know why I would stay here and try and remain in tech. Uh, cause if I, I can't imagine it going better at all. I don't know. Seems like a good fit. I'm, I'm pretty interested to hear back. Um, they'll, they said they'll let me know by next week, but so, I mean, time seems like it's ticking here. I may have a few weeks, uh, before I actually am back to working full time. So, um, I haven't gone looking for a place where I could actually acquire a keyboard and recording equipment. Um, but I think the, the time has come for me to, I might want to do that, uh, in the next few days here and actually start, actually start working on writing stuff. Like try, try writing some, some music. I think the goal will be try and write a Halloween album and release it, like put it out there somehow by this Halloween which is definitely doable. It won't be that that may just be like writing crappy little instrumental tracks the way I did before, just to kind of learn how to use a recording program just to get the lay of the land. And then after that, I'll start working on the novel songs. Yeah. Yeah, they say you're not supposed to tell people about your goals before you do them or else you'll, you'll feel demotivated and you won't actually follow through on them. Fortunately, I don't think anyone's listening to this thing, so I'm good. I'm totally safe uh, on that one. That's not a risk at all. Okay, what else is going on? Uh, yeah, so, you know, I actually mentioned to a friend of mine that I was interviewing at this at this job and she was like, well, you seem like you really don't like tech. You were pretty adamantly against it. Uh, I, I definitely, I definitely have a lot of misgivings about what tech is currently doing to the country. Um, yeah, yeah, and I don't think I remain in San Francisco long term. I think I think I am probably going to also start studying for the GRE because ultimately within. 
I don't know how long. It would be like a few years from now if I take a job here. Um, I'll probably probably look at uh, leaving to go to grad school somewhere. And, uh, or maybe not, I don't know. Anyway, the thing is, is that I, I do, I do hate tech. Like I do hate a lot of what tech is doing to the, like I often joke that, um, uh, Silicon Valley's main export these days is unemployment. Like it really is just automating a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that's, that's always been the case. Like it's always been the case that technology is uh, putting people out of work. Like they introduce robots on the car assembly lines and then, you know, we don't need workers to work there anymore. You go to the Tesla assembly factory in uh, Fremont, I think it is, and you tour that. And it's that the, there are people doing some things here and there. And some of those people are just maintaining the robots, but it's basically a very automated process. Like it's not at all like what the assembly line was when Ford devised it. Uh, so that's that's nothing new, but it's really just getting worse. You know, and the example that um, former you know presidential candidate Andrew Yang constantly brings up is is the notion of the self driving car. Um, once we have uh, Robots, AI, basically driving semi-trucks, driving delivery vehicles, driving Ubers. Um, That's going to change a lot of things. Um, At that point, I don't even know. That seems like, why would you even have a car of your own at that point? A lot of people just wouldn't have, you could just like say, okay, I'm I'm not going to have a car. It's like the way people used to buy music. They used to buy records, then it was, oh God, cassette tapes. Then CDs. And then it was like you downloaded the music digitally after you paid for it. Now it's like you just pay for a service. You can stream music. So it's like you don't actually own anything. And in a lot of ways, that's a relief. Like you don't end up with a bunch of useless polycarbonate just kind of lying around. Like if you get done with a CD and you never listen to it, like how much of a secondhand market is there for that really? You know, I've definitely just kind of like, I'm always on to the next thing. You know, I don't buy music and then hold on to it and listen to it forever. Like my, my parents still listen to the stuff I think they were listening to when they were pretty young. The stuff I was listening to when I was younger, like a teenager in my 20s or hell, even like two years ago, I don't listen to that anymore. A music subscription service makes way more sense for me. Like, yeah, just let me just give me access to whatever it is I want. And uh, yeah, that's going to end up being less than I would than I would spend on uh, if I had to buy all the stuff individually. Anyway, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. Like, what was my point about? Like, yeah, again, like, why own a car? The thing is, that's that's my point. Like, music doesn't hold its resale value. Cars are terrible at that. If really it's just you, you just summon a self-driving car um, that takes you from point A to point B, and those things are just everywhere. There's just a fleet of them driving around cities. Uh, yeah. 
there's two points. I mean, one is that people stop owning things. It seems we're moving away from ownership. We don't own uh, movies anymore so much as we pay for a service that just gives us access to them or music. And maybe like eventually it'll be automobiles as a service instead of like you, you buy an automobile. You buy an AAAS. Yeah, automobile as a service, an AAS. Look up some you know, snappy acronym for that. I don't know what it will be. Uh, let's see. But yeah. But the thing about tech is, is that I, I'm kind of okay with that. All right. Like I, I, I have, there are certain companies I certainly would choose not to work at given the choice. Like the major social media companies. I, I don't think I would, I don't think I could bear to work there. I can, I can barely stand to go on Twitter and just use the thing, you know, as, as like a, every few days go on there and see what the hell people are doing. That's just, Oh, that's just, uh, I don't, I don't enjoy that at all because I kind of do. I must enjoy it or else I wouldn't do it. Right. But yeah, if, yeah, as much as I don't like just being like an infrequent user of it, if my job was to maintain some part of that, oh, the hell with that. No, no, I don't like what that's doing to people. Like social media is just driving us nuts. I know everybody blames social media for everything. It's like the scapegoat. Like, oh, people are depressed. It's because they're on computers all the time. I don't know how much any of that is true. I really don't. There's certainly nothing I can back up with evidence. It's just I, I personally don't like social media. I do get the sense without being able to back it up concretely that it's not good for us. I, I do think a world where we're not online all the time would be, I'd rather live in that world. I'm very, very curious. Like I, I, I grew up at a time before the internet had really exploded. So when I was in high school, it was like, Hey, we have America online, you know, so you could go online and talk with people. And I was in Detroit. I could talk to some person I didn't know in like Roswell, New Mexico. That was weird. I don't think, I, I think that I might've been the first generation who, when we were, you know, in, in, in high school could, could suddenly do that. That was strange. And that, 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 that's a topic for another podcast, but that definitely shifted my worldview drastically. Um, when that, when that became the reality of it, when I realized, oh yeah, that we're just really interconnected now. But, uh, again, I'm rambling, which is kind of the point of this. Again, no one's listening. I don't have to like, this doesn't have to be structured, but yeah. So I, I wouldn't want to go work at the social media companies for that reason. I, I, I would like to go, here's where I was going with that. Yeah. It was a tangential point. I like to branch these things. As long as I keep track of the branches, I'm doing okay. But sometimes my brain has got some flatulence. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I would like to go back to like the 1980s, 1970s, and just kind of like to time travel back and see what the world was like. Like, how were people different? 
because I, I was too young to really know what the adult world was like before the internet came along. I don't have a frame of reference. And I'm, I've, I try to talk to people that are older and I say, well, how are things different? And it's not like an objective, like they can't just give me like a straight answer that isn't like bias. Like they're basically saying like, oh yeah, it was way better. Like, cause they didn't have all this technology stuff. Like the, the get off my lawn old man kind of mentality. Like, no, they're just, I'd like like an objective comparison if you can give it to me and not like this, I hate the new tech. I know nobody's objective, but I, that's what I want to see. I want to see for myself how were things, how did things used to be different? Yeah. Yeah, anyway. So I wouldn't want to work at one of the social media companies. Um, I could probably bring myself to work for a company that's doing AI, like a company that's doing a self-driving car. Like I know what that's going to do to the country. I know what impact that's going to have. It's not all going to be good. Um, it would be interesting work. You'd work with some really smart people. Those would be really, really interesting problems to try to solve. It would be it would be a really interesting job. Um, but no, actually, the the real reason I like tech, or the real reason I don't like tech, the reason I want to like get away from tech is not because I have. It's not really because of all these misgivings about what it's uh, doing to the country or to us individually. Um, there are certainly elements of that um, that concern me. Uh, but, I mean, if I'm really concerned about that, what would I do? I would, I would leave Silicon Valley and go try to build something that isn't tech-related outside of tech. Try and build something that would, you know, create jobs somewhere, foster economic growth in, a, in a, some community that doesn't have a lot of people gunning for it. Um, I, don't, I don't know what that would look like, but that, that's what I would do. I, I, I wouldn't just want to sit here and complain. Like, you know, however, however, my real problem with tech and the real reason I'm going to get away from it is because I'm definitely enamored of the idea that whatever it is you're going to do, you should try and be a really, really good one. Um, yeah, like whatever it is you're going to try to do, try and be the best one in the world. Try and be like the top of your game. And I don't mean like you have to be the best person in the entire world. Like world could be open for interpretation. It could be your corner of the world. But you, you want to try and be the best at something. You don't want to be in the long tail in every dimension of your life. You know, like you're just you're just passively good at a whole bunch of things. You want to be really, really good at a couple of things. And I mean, really, really good relative to your peers. And tech is such that even though I can work in tech, the the drive to be really, really good at tech is lacking in me. Now, if I go work at a company, I would want to own some piece of what it is I'm doing and be really, really good at that. Because good is possible. Like I'd like to be the, like the best at that company at something. 
have expertise in a few things and you're, you're the go-to person for something. And But I, I wouldn't want to try and become like the world's greatest software engineer. I mean, if you look at the people who are that, like who would be the world's best computer programmer? Probably Donald Newth. And Donald Newth is, yeah, as far as like a computer scientist who's accomplished a lot, who has like probably single-handedly built the field of computer science, like he's he's the guy. I wouldn't choose to be him. I I, I knew that if I if, if I devoted my life to that kind of work, it wouldn't be adding to the world the way that I would want it to be, and I don't think I would be enjoying it. I can certainly do it as a job and I can, I can be really happy, um, doing it, but I, I can't do it as like, this is my life's passion. And I know that I know that, uh, I can't, I can't devote my life to it. And you know, when I'm 80 years old, I'd be like, well, at least I was a computer scientist. No, like that's, I know I would regret that. And that's that's why I don't like that's why I need to get away from tech, because ultimately I don't have that opportunity available to me. I don't see that in my future. That might change. I I would be great if I woke up tomorrow and I was suddenly like, actually, I would very much like to uh, be a programmer and be like one of the world's best. And I'm going to just really furiously devote myself to it. Then, okay. I'll cross that bridge, but I, it's, I have not felt that way in a long time. You know, I, uh, I really feel like I want to be like a, a force, a bulwark against the dissemination of technology. I think people need space. People need to figure out how to like get back into nature and just disconnect and learn how to turn their minds off. Or better yet, just kind of tune into what their mind is, what their mind is doing, what their mind is telling them. You know, don't uh, don't crowd it out with constant distractions because I think that's driving us nuts. You know, it's it's not that technology is a problem. It's not that social media is a problem. The problem is that social media like facilitates some very problematic aspects of human nature human nature people just sort of look for distractions you have to kind of confront the darkness inside of yourself and technology you can just use technology to like avoid doing that for years and i think that will eventually catch up with people and that's that's why we're we're all so sick i think i don't know um Yeah, again, it doesn't really matter. I always want to hedge my bets and say, I don't know for sure, because I can't know. Like, nobody's listening to this. And I think if anybody is listening to this and they know me as well, if they know me as well as uh, they'd have to know me in order to be listening to this, um, people I have in my life that closely, they're not that capricious. 
they'd understand that anything I said like might technically be wrong, but it's just uh, it's just as accurate of a representation of what it is I'm I'm feeling as I can express in with limited with limited use of language, you know. Especially my use of language. I'm not that articulate when it comes to yeah saying stuff anyway yeah how long are we in here let's see how long have i half an hour i uh i actually went out on my way over to the beach today i stopped somewhere and got a poke bowl uh, i stopped in russian hill little neighborhood um the north side of san francisco which i think where the where lombard street is the curvy road going down the hill, uh, it zigzags. I think it's in Russian Hill. There's a little downtown area and I uh, stopped there uh, to go to, a, to the bookstore and I saw there was a poke place and I thought, yeah, poke. This is something I used to love. I used to passionately love that stuff and I used to, to eat it all the time. I have not had it in probably close to six months. Uh, since the, ever since before the pandemic, but you know, I haven't had it since, uh, yeah, since way before the pandemic. So, so yeah, I saw a place, went in, placed an order. It was, uh, actually not the greatest. It was probably the worst poke I've ever had, which is not to say that it was bad. It was just not as good as anything I've ever had. Not even close as good to anything Still delicious. Still wonderful. Just like a bowl of rice with some of that fake crab tuna. Ah, yeah. How I have missed the... That's one thing I wish I could eat more often, but you, poke, you really should like keep it to like once a week because of the mercury. I always get it with tuna. I could get it with salmon, but it just it wouldn't, wouldn't be the same. So yes, I'm actually sitting here very, very happy because I am full of, of a belly full of a poke bowl and I'm going to go jogging on the beach and I'm going to be like, okay, no, I'm not going to get disgusting. I was going to say, uh, okay, I'm not going to say it, but you know, if you, the last thing you ate, if you're exercising, you can generally taste it. Um, so I'm actually pretty happy, but I'm trying to like, let it sit. Uh, that's why I'm like doing this. I'm trying to kill some time. Uh, I could read, but I rather like just sitting here staring out at the beach, watching the kites fly through the air. I keep wanting to, like, whenever I come over to the beach, I see people with kites. Like, I'll jog past people who are just playing with a kite, and I, I love the look of that. Um, I, uh, I want to get one, and I want to bring it over here, and I want to fly it. Um, but I feel like that that's one of those things that I, I would... I don't know if I want to get that online, you know, and I'm not sure what style I want. I've seen like some that have like two handles. So you can like, you can basically control how they fly. Like you pull on them and they, they, they shift the direction. Like you can actually kind of steer them. Um, and there's some that are just like on a piece of twine on a roll, like the normal, you know, plain vanilla kite. Uh, there are some that are just like flat. And there are some that are like very boxy. 
like I don't actually know which one I would like. Uh, it's it's one of these things that I feel like I would end up having to buy like five different kites, and like the fifth one I bought, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is perfect. Or I'd realize here are the five major styles. Like I just don't want to like start investing in kites. And I know like if I just bought one blindly without knowing, I'd probably bring it over here and it would just fall down because I got the wrong one. That's what I've I've learned. You have to be judicious about which hobbies you decide to take on. Because uh, if you really want to be good at something and you want to enjoy it, you, you got to like invest to find really what works for you. You got to like move around a bit. Yeah. I also need some new running shoes. Mine are about to fall apart. They are at least two years old. And I have done a lot of running in them. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm very, very hesitant to like order shoes online because I, I can definitely get my size. But if they weren't quite what I was looking for, I'd have to like send them back, try a different pair. Again, that might be a whole lot of trial and error. And when you're when you're talking about something online, that ends up being that ends up being a lot of turnaround. Anyway, I'll get to it eventually. I don't know. I'm not. I don't know what I'm complaining about here. I'm not complaining about anything. Just sort of just sort of talking it through. These are all pros and cons. Uh, what else is I mean, definitely a lot of stuff has been going on. I have another job interview tomorrow, actually. That's another, like, I actually actually told a friend of mine about, like, tech interviews. Like, if you're a software engineer and you're interviewing in Silicon Valley, I was like, here's the thing. Usually there's a phone screen. So it's like an initial 30-minute call or somebody just tries to get to know you. Like, I think they're not even a technical person. They're not asking you technical questions. It's just a recruiter. I think they're just trying to keep out the crazies. Or if not the crazies and the people who just have like really negative attitudes, I would guess. I I, I don't. I think they're 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 meant to screen for personality. Is I think what I'm saying. I um, so you got to do that, and that that means you got to like tell them about yourself, your experience. You have to sell them, like oh yeah yeah. And they, um, it's kind of nice because if if you're dealing with a good one, you get to learn about the company, and a good one will tell you a lot of what you need to know and it will tell you information that will um, help your decision. Uh, they're not really incentivized to do that. I think I think generally recruiters, um, I think they work on some sort of commission. Um, I don't know how many of them are salaried. I'd be interested to know that. But in any case, there's the first 30 minute, you know, um, call. Kind of just like suss you out. And then there's like a, an online uh, or on the phone sort of technical phone screen, which is usually like an hour long. And that's just, can you pass muster? So they'll, they'll grill you with a, some problem. See if you can write some code to solve it. That's round two. Round three is uh, uh, an on-site. You come into the office and you'll probably meet... Oh, uh, it'll probably be like five, maybe six sessions of, of meeting with like one or two different people in each session. Like basically it's like 
you're going to join that tech company's like little family. Uh, even if it's a large company, you know, you're joining the family of the team you will be on. And so they, they, they want to get as many people as possible talking to you. So they know, uh, they, they can get, they can see if they, they like you and if they, they feel that they can work with you and that you're a good match for them. Um, I don't know. Like, the, and then sometimes there's two days. Like when I when I reviewed in my last job that I that I ended up getting, there were two days of onsites. So I had to go into the office twice and spend five hours each time talking with a whole bunch of people before they finally decided, okay, yeah, let's let's uh, let's let's offer him a job. And so if you're if you're like interviewing um, for tech jobs and you're you're doing like Let's say you have three or four prospects that you really like and you want to investigate them and you narrow it down so that you're going to do on-sites with all of them. You're doing, that's three or four days, maybe even twice that, of you like taking a day off of your current job if you are working and going into the office to meet those people. And they're they're testing you. They're grilling you on technical knowledge the whole time, like, some of them were just behavioral interviews, but a lot of those interviews are like, hey, here's an algorithm problem. Write some code on a whiteboard to solve it. Not even write code at the computer like, you know, every programmer is used to doing. No, no, you have to get up at a, at a whiteboard and write it with a marker. That is not the way code is written anywhere except in, you know, technical programming job interviews. I told my friend about this and she was like, my God, man, that is like super anxiety producing. Like that is like, you know, nightmares of, uh, you know, I have to like study for my final exams for the final week of the semester kind of pressure. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's more involved than, uh, than, uh, I, I don't know. I'm used to, it's like when I used to be, uh, used to be an accountant I used to go like interviewing with jobs I like the job that I ended up getting when I finally went in it was just like a, like for an hour I think I talked to the person who would be my boss and he was like so uh he asked me some few, a few questions and on the strength of that just like a like 45 minute hour conversation that was pretty casual just some back and forth um I got a job offer like the next like in the next couple of days. That's all it took. I, I like I really don't know if it would have been better if I had like had to be there for five hours and talk to everyone who was in the office. Like these are all gonna be my coworkers. Do I really want to work here? Would that have would that have, would that have changed things for me? I don't know. I don't know. I kind of wonder to what extent that's spread to the rest of the country by now, like to other industries. Like if you're going to be, what's it, if you're going to be, if you're going to be a lawyer, for example, at a law firm, like you, if you know your stuff, if you've got like high marks, you've got really good experience, a good track record, do you have to go in and meet like a whole bunch of people at the firm? Are they going to have you like go through six or seven interviews with a bunch of people like like yeah do we like you 
it might be better if, if uh, more places did that. But it's not something I've ever heard of or seen outside of tech. And I, I, I kind of wonder why tech calls for it. Is it really, maybe it's just engineers. Engineers are just insufferable, you know, aspie human beings that can't communicate. They tend to have bad attitudes. They tend to be prima donnas. That's probably it. Yeah, the prima donna programmers. Like, they're, there's probably a lot of lurking uh, negative traits in software engineers. And one of those bad apples can just ruin the dynamic of an entire team. And engineers make enough, not a backdoor brag, that uh, it, it, you really don't want to incur that cost. You don't want a lot of turnover. You want to keep that as low as possible. And you don't want somebody with a, a negative attitude, like slowing down the velocity of the team. You want just, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just the cost of making a mistake is so high that it, it makes sense to hedge against that. In any case, I've, I've actually been not complaining about it too much. Um, I, I am more on the senior side, so that means there's always a systems design interview, which is, you know, a few years ago when I was interviewing, it was, uh, I was interviewing for senior positions, but nobody asked me about systems design questions. It was just algorithms and data structures and write some code to do X on, on the whiteboard. Um, which is, I, I like studying that stuff, but I've actually studied that stuff so much and forgotten it enough times that I'm kind of like, I know just enough that it's like tedious to try and like relearn all of that. Um, but I, I'm not, I don't know enough to like just be naturally good at it. So it's kind of like, it's hard to jump back in and learn that. But I, I mean, I also, that's not really useful. Um, like I'm interviewing for senior positions and fortunately it seems like the tide has turned. So now they are throwing in systems design questions, which I, I guess if you're listening to this, you, you, I don't know who's listening to this. You might not know. Systems design is more like, how do you like set up, um, how do you set up computer infrastructure in the cloud um, to like run large scale distributed systems? How do, how do you deal with those sorts of issues? And how do you, how do you put those systems together so that they, they are fault tolerant, they can handle more traffic if your you know, website starts getting a lot of uh, hits, that sort of thing. Um, if you study that sort of thing, that's actually very practical knowledge, like understanding the trade-offs and the different systems you could use. Um, I really like studying that stuff because that's 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 useful. You you generally don't go into a tech job and start implementing algorithms. I don't know why. Well, I do know why those are part of the tech interviews because, yeah, those are just the fundamentals. You kind of like have to know those the way if you're a basketball player, you know how to, uh, you know, shoot a free throw. Yeah, it's basic basketball one on one, but you got to be able to do it. You got to know algorithms and data structures. You have to know big O. But, you know, for the most part, that that's not something you're focusing on very heavily. Now, if you're a senior software engineer at a company, like you, you do need to understand how do you build systems, 
in the cloud? How do you like arrange servers that when you put in caching to speed up performance, blah, 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 all these buzzwords. Um, studying for the systems design interview, that's not just like a theoretical thing. Um, you're like learning some material for the interview to pass it, and then you never refer back to it again. That's all actually very, very practical material. I think I'm going to continue studying for systems design when I'm way done with interviews, because I, I think I think the merits of that are tremendous. And probably what's even better is to say, like, once you know the theory, once you like, once you know the content of a systems design interview in a generic sense, then it's a question of, okay, what are the right tools in given situations to do all of this? I like, I, I kind of wish in my last job, like before my last job, I had prepped for a systems design interview because that knowledge, knowing like that, those aspects of things would have really helped me um, in the job that I had. Um, yeah, yeah, and the thing is, I actually have tried studying distributed systems before, like I have textbooks on it, but they, they actually weren't quite as accessible and practical in terms of, well, how do you do this or how do you do that? How do you tackle this problem? as what I've been reading to prepare for the interviews. So, yeah, I've actually, I've actually really enjoyed it. And um, it's the kind of material that like, yeah, it's, it's all kind of theoretical. It's like very high level. And it, it's definitely like triggering a lot of questions in me. Like, okay, well, I see how that would be a solution, but how do you actually do that in the real world? Because it introduces all these other problems. Um, they don't cover that, but just looking at, looking at, you know, okay, a systems design, how do you solve this problem? You say, okay, well, on paper, I see how the answer is the correct answer, but uh, in order for that to work, there's going to be all these other factors you have to take into account. How do you, like, how do you actually account for those? How are those actually handled? God, what am I? Okay. I think I've talked about tech interviews enough. Um, anyway, yeah, got another one tomorrow. Uh, one of the sessions is going to be on JavaScript. I have not really sat down to just write raw JavaScript in. What the hell was it? I had to do some of my last job, maybe. It was probably over six months ago. I didn't do a lot on the front end. Anyway, so I'm I'm kind of curious. Like today, I woke up and I was like, really, should I just be like cramming on JavaScript all day, just brush up on that language, or is it worth risking just sort of like not doing so hot on that interview? Anyway, we'll see. I did watch some online videos. Uh, God, where the hell am I going with this? Uh, let's see. We're close to an hour. I could probably start wrapping this up. Yeah. Okay. Let's pretend this is a this is a high school essay. So I started off. 
talking about how I want to make Halloween music. Yeah, there's actually a lot of themes around Halloween, and I'm exploring a lot of those themes. Like, I think I'm trying to like like pick some broad subjects that are kind of that would make for good Halloween albums um, that aren't necessarily corny. So it wouldn't be like, hey, let's do let's do life on a pirate ship. Like, it's not exactly what I'm thinking. Um, but something that could be, it could make for interesting lyrical content. And of course, that's part of the reason I'm digging into the, the, um, uh, mythology of Halloween. I don't know if I've talked about this, but... There's a horror movie that I saw recently called The Wicker Man. And there was a remake made in, I want to say, around 2006, starring Nicolas Cage, which I have not seen. I've heard it's, I, I, I don't know if it's any good or not. I can't speak to it. But I, I was, um, I saw the original from 1973. It's an old, uh, it's an old film about a police detective who is sent to a very remote British Isle uh, to investigate the disappearance, the reported disappearance of a, of a young girl on the island. And it's very, very remote. So he, he flies in with a police plane and just leaves his car in the water. And he uh, puts himself up in the local inn. And it's just him and a bunch of locals. And, you know, there's, it's isolated. He's just out there with them. And, uh, it becomes very, very clear, very, there's something funny going on. Like it was kind of a weird vibe. It's like at the beginning of an American werewolf in London, when the, the two guys show up and they go into the pub and it's like, okay, on the surface, things are fine, but they're clearly all aware that you are outsiders and they're treating you that way. And they're acting kind of weird towards you. Uh, there's that whole thing going on the whole time. And, uh, that might be one of the best horror movies I've ever seen um, because it, it certainly doesn't rely on gore. It doesn't rely on jump starts or jump scares, jump starts. Like it doesn't have the elements um, of a horror movie in that it tries to like go over the top to shock you. It's just the way it plays out like towards like the ending of the film is just, it's just, deeply disturbing. It all builds towards a very unsettling premise um, that kind of just sort of uh, holds our civilization's face um, up to a mirror. So really take a look at yourself. Like really take a look at yourself. And of course, what you see is somewhat uh, creepy. Um, yeah, the policeman, it's, it, this is definitely touched upon throughout the film, is a devout Christian of some kind. And he, he becomes very aware early on that uh, the, the natives of this island practice a form of paganism. And uh, 
and of, so of course they butt heads about this. Um, he's sort of admonishing them, like saying like, well, you should be Christians. And they're like, well, no. It, it definitely draws a lot of parallels between paganism. There's the, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it, but it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the odd thing is that the, the, the idea of sacrifice is present in both. Um, yeah, we, we look at, uh, we look at pagan cults, you want to call them cults, like basically pagan rituals, um, Friday Christianity, some of those included a component of human sacrifice. Um, those are those are typically found in um, agricultural societies. This is what I learned from uh, Joseph Campbell. There are two major kinds of mythologies for two different kinds of people. There are hunters and there are farmers. So the hunters, um, I think, came first because we were all hunter-gatherers initially. We were all, it wasn't until 10,000 years ago that we finally realized we could sit down and, and stabilize our food supply by planting and tending crops. Uh, but hunters, they're the ones that have shaman, uh, and they tend to favor individualism. Um, so, you know, these are the places where there's a right of manhood. If you're going to come of age in such a, in such a culture, you have, you have to go out and prove yourself and come back a man because some very, very difficult rite of passage that makes you earn your adulthood. And you, you know, you find yourself at that point, you connect with who you are the essence of your being. And, you know, there are shaman who will interpret dreams that they'll, these sorts of things are, are typical to these cultures. Then there are, then there are farming societies and, and these individualism is discouraged. So, uh, they're more collective, like really being part of the group, conforming to the group and doing what's in the best interest of the group is really the fundamental point of the mythologies they're collective and they discourage individualism i thought that was interesting like one thing i have realized um is that if you look at the if you look at the holy bible the christian bible like the old testament it, it is a it is more of a farmer-based kind of thing it's a collective mentality sort of thing like it's here are rules here is law and order which is meant to coalesce the israelites into a single tribe that are loyal to each other and at least put up a tough front when dealing with outsiders you know you you belong to the group you do what's in the best interest of the group and you coalesce around this um hashem god And when you get to the New Testament, it's it's the opposite, actually. Like it's the, the the key thing there is it's not that you're. I mean, putting aside what's in the Pauline epistles, that you are a member of a larger body. Um, Jesus talked a lot about how, you know, the very hairs of your head are numbered. 
know, that really introduces the notion of a personal God, a God that you should talk to. It's not that you go to synagogue and hear the scripture read. It's that you uh, connect with God yourself. So it brings in the individualism very heavily. So you have those two elements that are kind of balanced uh, between the old Judaism and the new Christianity. And it's interesting to me that Christians uh, have both of those things that they can tap into. It's both that you're a part of a collective and a part of a larger body, uh, but you're also an individual. It has that sort of contradiction to it that's uh, in the balance, which I think in cultures that are Christian, there's that, that stability of the overall group, but there's the power of the individual. You have to self-actualize. There's both elements to it. But the sacrifices, like the notion of human sacrifice, is uh, common in the agricultural, with the farmers, uh, the agricultural communities. Um, they're the ones who believe that blood must be paid to uh, bring forth life. There must be death. Um, you cut off someone's head and plant it in the ground so that there will be, uh, so that crops will grow. And of course, this sounds barbaric. I, I got very, very fascinated in this because I, I know that the Aztecs used to sacrifice people. Um, and a lot of these, a lot of these rites, not just the Aztecs, but a lot of um, what we know from the Neolithic era um, are pretty brutal. Like uh, you really have to be, you really need that collective mentality. Like I'm doing this for the good of the group. You, you'd, you'd have to have that in order to want to sacrifice yourself it's for, for a greater good that transcends you. But as barbaric as this sounds, uh, there was a note. It was in one of Joseph Campbell's books. I think it was the first book of his Masks of God series, a primitive mythology, in which he makes the point, referencing somebody else. I don't remember where he took the information from, but... Um, in major urban areas, um, the number of car accidents that kill people every year, um, as a proportion of the population, that is lower, or actually that is that is more, that is higher than the proportion of people that were sacrificed, uh, say for the good of the harvest, in the old pagan cultures. And so these are very statistically predictable accidents, um, but we don't, we just sort of accept them as that's just part of the way of our life. Some people are going to die in car accidents. It's just what happens. We all sort of take the risk. And it is, it is sort of a risk you have to like assume if you want to live in a large urban area and drive a car. And that's just car accidents. I and mean, I'm sure if, if you don't have a car, there's, there's plenty of ways to die in a major city. And yet we, uh, you know, we're, we're generally okay with this. I think if you ask anyone, they would say, well, ideally, there would be zero deaths. But I think most people sort of have a, a practical middle ground. They say, well, well, you know, we can't eliminate all deaths. The only way to do that would be to eliminate the way of life altogether. So 
we need to just kind of accept that there's going to be some, not everyone's going to make it through the year, every year. There, there's there's an acceptable, tolerable amount of, of loss. And, and he equates this to being like the sacrifices we used to make. You sacrifice a human so that the crops come in. We sacrifice humans uh, so that uh, so that we can enjoy living in large urban areas and uh, and drive our fantastically dangerous automobiles. Maybe that won't be the case when self-driving cars come in. Maybe maybe self-driving cars will be like spotless as far as the human fatality records go. Anyway, yes, The Wicker Man. Highly recommended. It is... Yeah. It is delightfully creepy. Without... Without, like, even a hint of violence. It's just, uh... Yeah. Yeah, that's what makes me... It's the kind of film, like, it's from 1973. That's pretty old. It's the kind of movie that makes me not want to, you know, uh, shit on a lot of old movies. Like, I've, I've seen a few old movies lately. Like, in during the shelter-in-place, I've watched some really ancient... Uh, like, I, I watched an old Hitchcock film, mostly because it was filmed uh, in San Francisco. It was, uh, it was set here and filmed here, and it's very, very prominent. The landmarks you see in it, um, but it was not a. It, it, I I it, it did I don't think it aged well. I can see that it was a very very. Very very well made movie. And I, I'm sure it was very very well made for its time, so it's like, it's, top of the line. Um, but it just doesn't uh it doesn't hold up the pacing doesn't really hold up the story itself was kind of odd didn't really make sense like if you, if you redid the story and changed the pacing changed the cinematography updated the characters so it would be more realistic the story would still be weird yeah that one in particular Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. There are some movies that don't make sense in terms of like what is happening in the plot. For example, the Coen Brothers movie, movies. Like all, most of those, it's not like there's a discernible sequence of events. Like there's cause and effect, and there's continuity, and it all, it all kind of adds up. Like it's more about the characters more than it is the story. The story is just there to kind of act as a fancy frame for the characters. There would drive the story. There's something like Donnie Darko, which is intentional. It, it's intentionally like obfuscated. Like you can't tell what the hell is going on in Donnie Darko uh, because parts of the film were just cut out. Like the original screenplay was just hacked up. It was like, let's just do this and it'll be a mystery that nobody can solve. Uh, yeah, that was, that was very much done. There's, if there's stuff online you can find. Like here's, the missing parts of Donnie Darko. And if you if you add in the rest of that, it all makes sense. Uh, but Donnie Darko, the point isn't the plot. 
And the point isn't really the characters. It feels more to me like it's an aesthetic. Like it's it's kind of what I would aim to do musically when I started off talking about this. I would like to create a sort of musical version of what the Donnie Darko film is to me. Just something that's sort of uh, artistically on the nose for you know a given um, a given feeling, a given mood that you want to set. Yeah, you can keep going on, but Vertigo, Vertigo, I didn't understand. It was just, it was strange. It, uh, the plot really didn't make any sense. The characters were just confusing. They didn't seem true to real people. Uh, the only thing I really liked about it, I think, was the setting. It was one of those movies. I'm trying, I'm, I'm stalling for time here. I've been trying to think while I'm talking about this. What's another film like that that just, it doesn't seem to come together at all. Like it's not redeemed by any like humor, characters, plot. Eh, doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, old movies. Like like watching The Wicker Man, I was like, hey, this 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 film is pretty close to fifty years old. And I, I I'm I haven't seen the remake. I'd be willing to wager that the remake was probably terrible. It, it probably, it probably inserted gratuitous, over-the-top violence. It probably just, probably just made itself into a, a typical horror film. There was probably violence, and you know the, um, and that just wasn't necessary. You know, it, it wouldn't be necessary, but I'm sure it was inserted just because shock value. You're gonna do a horror movie in, in like 2006. You, you're coming on on the, the heels of like the Saw franchise. Like the first three are out, and like Hostel, I think Hostel was Hostel two out at that point. Anyway, like all the torture porn is coming out. So yeah, of course, if you're gonna make a, a remake of an old 1970s horror film, it's better have something. It can't just be plot. Subtlety is just not enough in that uh, environment, I'm afraid. Hmm. Let me see. I'm curious how uh, how cold it. Oh yeah, it's nice and cool out. I'm sitting in my car. I have been since I started recording this, and it's uh, it's getting hot. So now I'm starting to think, wow, it's hot at the beach, but it's actually pretty cold out there. Uh, when I change my clothes, I'm going to leave my sweatshirt on. At this point, I'm just stalling. Like, what am I, an hour and, an hour and uh, ten minutes into this? Yeah. The poke is digested enough. It's down. I won't get a cramp if I start running. I just, uh, I just don't want to run. Plus, I know as soon as I'm, I'm done running, I gotta drive back home. And, uh, there, I'm gonna start preparing for this interview. So the longer I keep talking to you, listener who does not exist, the longer I keep rambling, the longer I punt on having to go, uh, to go do work.
but be it as it may, I don't, uh, I don't shy away from exercise and I don't shy away from, uh, from doing work. Yeah, since I'm speaking potentially publicly to no one, but that'll be my official line. I'm a go-getter, so I'm going to end this and go, go jog. Officially, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So, hey, um, yeah, man, it's, it's looking pretty rough out there. I've, I, I avoided talking about the pandemic, um, uh, directly entirely, but it, you know, this is right now, this is just, um, a week or two after like what looked like the second wave, but of course what the medical experts are saying is still the first wave is just a resurgence of the first wave. It is not looking good out there right now in a lot of places. It's, it's pretty ugly. So on the off chance anyone is listening to this out there, uh, yeah, like always, I hope that you're well, uh, you and everyone, you know, I hope you're getting through this. I hope you're, um, that you've learned how to keep yourself sane. I I don't know. I have. I've had over four months to figure this out, so I'm good. I hope you have too. If you've got uh, your coping strategies down, and I hope you're being safe, however you want to be. Yeah. Yeah, I wish you all the best. I hope you're doing well. And until next time, this is Jim signing off. You stay classy. Cheers.